This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello. It's a great morning for a conversation about Black mental health. And you know, Kat, being on the radio with you is a place I never thought I would actually be as a trained social worker. As a clinically trained social worker, I have been given the skills to provide psychosocial assessments on individuals. What is that? Psychosocial assessments. I know it's a big name that basically say, I can actually like diagnose you because I'm not licensed, but through a licensed supervision, but I can give you a diagnosis that then opens you up to different resources, ideally. Right, right. (laughs) This diagnosis actually uh, creates a label on most people that comes with a big stigma. And the stigma is seen not just in the black mental health world, not just in the mental health world, but in every intersectional system that our people interact with. And as a clinical social worker for about 10 years, I would travel with my identified clients or consumers or patients. Every agency labels people differently when providing services. I would ride with them to their housing agency, to their electrical company, to um, the lawyer's office, to um, just every place they had to be to get the services that they needed to maintain a certain lifestyle. And what I realized is that when they weren't able to maintain the resources, that agency that was helping them would then classify them as failures. They weren't able to fi- they weren't able to properly succeed in whatever program they were enrolled in. And I kept finding this that this was happening. So they used the term failure. Um, unsuccessful was what I would say, right? Unsuccessful. Unsuccessful um, or termination prior to meeting goals, right? Or terminated their treatment before meeting you know assigned treatment goals. But yeah, they were labeling a lot of people these failures so that they could continue to receive dollars for their programs and blame the individuals for it not working. So in social services, you know, there's so much money into this and people like, why aren't things getting better? Well, it's because when I was realizing I'd go place to place in the same narrative as it's their fault, it's the individual's fault, it's the Richmonder's fault. I realized it's actually the way the system is set up, the way the program is set up from jump is actually what's wrong. It's not given the lens it needs to from the actual person. And most of that really means that black mental health can't be understood or even conceptualized of how to treat it until we back up and take the time to realize what is actually triggering black mental health. What is the onset that actually started generations ago with our ancestors? And that's why this conversation is so important. That's why Our guests today are organizing Black Mental Health Week and putting this narrative out there, our own narrative, 
for black mental health because as of now, it's the state, it's the nation, it's DMAS, it's Medicaid. What is DMAS? Yeah, DMAS is the Department of um, Medical Assistance Services. So, so Medicaid, um, it's a national piece of, of Medicaid. They're all, they have their lens and their narrative of what mental health is, but from what we see everywhere is that the people are not claiming that and not owning that space. It's not, not at least not the space that's resourced. Right. And do you think a lot of that is because, as in so many professional fields, there's a lack of representation and inclusion in social work? At, oh, my goodness. Absolutely. So understanding the history of social work started from the social services, started from charity, started from white women that were out doing work through faith organizations that then created a, a profession that was the same white woman approach, right? And then on the boards, the big deciders with the money were still the white men. So we really took the charity nonprofit approach and made it into a profession of social workers and said, this is how we're going to solve our community problems. It's just more charity. And that's, again, is not the lens that is actually impactful and why black social workers created their own infrastructure organization and now their own theories on how to work and uplift their people. Yeah, and today we're actually going to talk to the president of Richmond Black Social Workers. Yep, Daryl Frazier, my very first supervisor um, out of school and a good friend of mine. And also Tangie Moore. So we're really excited to have them on. Stay tuned. I'm really excited this week. I have some friends of mine, Tangie Moore and Daryl Frazier are here on Race Capital. Thanks for joining us, you all. Thank you. Thank you. Now, these are my comrades in progress as we are really organizing a great event that is happening for the second year in a row. Black Mental Health Week right here in Richmond, Virginia, the formal capital of the Confederacy. These two mental health professionals have come together with their squads around the Richmond metro area to bring an incredible event, a few events next week that are kicking off. But first, let me just welcome to the show and let them introduce themselves and a little bit of what they do and how we can recognize them in the community. Tangi, why don't you go first? Okay. Again, my name is Tangie Moore. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, co-owner of Avail Outpatient Counseling. What I love to share is that, yes, I am in private practice, but it's not just me in an office seeing my clients throughout the day. Avail has definitely created a face in the community. We are centered on creating safe spaces, healing spaces for both men and women. So a part of what we do is offer community outreach, um, host events all centered around promoting awareness of mental health, giving education surrounding mental health, and really just being mindful of how we can continue to break the cycle and stigma surrounding mental health. Nice. Mr. Frazier. Yes, yes. How you doing this morning? My name is Daryl Fraser. I'm a licensed clinical social worker as well. Um, the president of the Richmond Association of Black Social Workers and also an associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University at the School of Social Work. So what I do as the president of Black Social Workers is, you know, we are about the welfare of the black community. Mm -hmm. uh, we have advocacy. We do outreach. We do uh, community education as a way of empowering social workers mm -hmm. to go out and do the work that we do for the black community. So you all are on the show today to help get out some information about Black Mental Health Week. Just give the people right now, when are the dates of Black Mental Health Week? It will be October the 6th through October the 10th. And just note that October 10th is World Mental Health Day. 
Right, right. And that's when you all really, last year, you, uh, Vail Counseling and Mecca Williams, who's an LPC, put together a banging event. Really quickly, tell the folks about that. Yeah, so our event was entitled Ain't Nothing Wrong With You, Mm. because oftentimes, especially in the black community, that's the response given when someone discloses mental health issues and concerns. Mm -hmm. And so- Not just someone, black. Yes, exactly, in the black community. And so we held a panel discussion with professionals. Daryl was one of those professionals on that panel to address uh, mental health in the black community and to break down that stigma by talking more about it and really putting it out there like, hey, this is something we suffer from too and we need to talk more about it and know how to seek help when we're faced with it. And that's what was so impressive to me is that you all knew exactly how to reach out to your community, how to market per se to your community by even naming it that, right? Exactly. Ain't nothing wrong with you. I connect with that. We connect with that. So the idea of you all as black mental health professionals setting the table is so important and y'all when I tell you it was literally leaking out the room people were at the window watching like literally uh, the room was not big enough so we're really excited to be able to continue what you all are building on this and making more space for black mental health let's go back to the more historical side of mental health for black folks and what systems and constructs really were created that now have manifested into us having a need for our own type of mental health, right? Everything that's happened as far as disparities in history, we talk a lot about um, just tools of white supremacy. Well, that has all um, continued to impact our minds and our mental health. So Daryl, as the president of Richmond Black Social Workers, something that you all understand is the root of the causes of many of just the frustrations, traumas, the stressors that come with black mental health. So when you try and give people a history, where do you start? What do you even say? It just depends on where you want to start the conversation because our history in this country started, you know, a little over 400 years ago, but we have a history that predates that. Thank you. Um, But coming to this, the way that we were brought into this country as um, slaves, as um, shadow, it brought us into a condition that was not natural. Mm. And we weren't even looked at as people or humans. So mental health was not even a a concern. Um, But I think what's interesting is over the years, what happens in this country is our reality has been described by our oppressors, Mm -hmm. right? So a good example of that could be, you know, they describe a lot of uh, black people who were enslaved as being uh, lazy and shiftless. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had a black person that was trying to escape slavery, they, mm-hmm. were, they were labeled with this term called dreptomania. Mm-hmm. So you were crazy to not, they would, they, would, they would call you crazy because, you know, running away was somehow looked at as abnormal. Right, a disorder. So it was a disorder. So our condition has continually been labeled and we've been having labels put on us based on other people's perception of our behaviors mm-hmm. which you know if you, when you, if you if you where we are now if you stop and look back at that you know doesn't make any sense and that's just most history of us in this country is that it's written by white people it's written by the dominant narrative even our own words that we speak a lot of times can yeah. be those of the oppressor we're conditioned that right. way right, right? and to even begin from a black centered mental health, you have to understand where it started. 
So always going back to not just the 400 years ago and how we were brought here, but how that even... It continues to manifest. It continues to manifest. It continues to manifest. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, we, you know, we're all, we all been trained as social workers. You've all been going through school. You've mm -hmm. taken a psychology course. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those theories that we were taught were never really developed for black people in our condition, in our reality. Right. You can stop and think about that. Right. So you all are both licensed clinical social workers. Tell the listeners a little bit about what that is compared to like, a, like, is that a therapist? Are you a case manager? Do you hand out food stamps? Like what is a licensed clinical social worker? Well, once you become licensed clinical social worker, it's really just giving us that privilege to create our own. Um, and so like myself, often we move forward into private practice, but as social workers, period, we are able to wear more hats. It's very broad. So we can be all those things you mentioned, mm -hmm. therapist, caseworker, advocate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this profession is so great because it doesn't have to end in the office, as I mentioned earlier. Right. So I can go have these sessions with clients one-on-one, -on -one, then I'm going out in the community, I'm serving food, I'm handing out resource information. Right. We can do all those things. Just having that license gives us more opportunity, more more privilege and more access mm -hmm. to doing more for the community. Yeah, and I would add on to that. Our our training is more holistic. So we look at the the framework for us is person and environment, yes. the bio, the psycho, the social. Mm -hmm. so, so when you said it's more holistic compared to compared to psychology, psychology go. just focuses on the individual and the brain. Um, the medical profession looks at the um, the ailment, the physical ailment as the problem, mm -hmm. but we look at the person. Mm -hmm. in the environment, the person in the family, in context. Right. So our training gives us a different lens. It's, it's more, we look at things, like I said, holistically. Mm -hmm. All the systems that are related to that individual experience and problems. So beyond just, you know, in psychology, they always say like, they focus on, well, the, the problem is the person. Right. Well, we recognize and understand that the problem is within the context of the environment in which that person lives. Oh. And if y'all are listening and y'all know me and us at this show, all we ever talk about is play, space, and time. Exactly. And that's really what and how I was trained as well as a clinical social worker. I didn't go and get my license because that's just a different route. But now I'm here. Like just as social workers, we still have that same framework and I'm doing my work through media. That's just a tool, right. again, to be able to do progress and liberation through space, pace and time for the exact same community that I've always been working with the last 12 years. So the idea of what social workers can do is, is really powerful. And I do many different things and I'm just telling a little bit random story, but someone actually I'm not going to name the, the very nationwide agency for this, but they told me very directly, they're like, we don't want our stakeholders to see social workers as the people that work here that are working with Latinx communities that are doing our outreach. We don't want them to be seen as social workers. You all, um, that's a taboo label. Mm. And it, it really hurt my heart, but you know, it was one of those things that it just reminded me that we need to continue to talk about what social work is really about and what social workers can do. And just the power of social workers that come from certain lenses and education and exposure and proximity to community that we need. But you know, can I address that? Please. I think what you're talking about is the stigma that does come along with our profession. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is rightfully so. Mm. Because when you think okay. about the history of what social most people when they ask them what a social worker is yep you're coming to snatch my kids yep and that was the reality that was an actual reality yeah and oftentimes what happens is we blame the victims and say well you know they're not doing this because 
there's a reason why you have stigma. Stigma comes from something else, right? Mm -hmm. Something happened to a group of people and they have this idea that, or this narrative that paints their reality. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, if we look at things through that white supremacist lens, we don't believe people, mm. right? So when you think about, we talk about stigma and black mental health, why would I trust you right. if you're labeling me, for example, as being abnormal for wanting to escape oppression? That's like reverse psychology. Yeah, like something's but... wrong with you for wanting to escape this situation. Right. And as we were talking about being, like how social work as a profession is holistic, mm -hmm. When you think about mental health, mental health is not just on the individual. It's not just on the individual in terms of saying like, and, and that's why I, I, what drew me to social work was there were reasons why these behaviors occur. Right. I was a psychology un undergrad mm -hmm. and I look, I learned all those theories, Maslow, I, I, was, I was eating them up. Mm -hmm. But as I started to work in the field, I had the question, I'm like, well, why are things the way that they are? Mm. So, you know, one of my first jobs, I was working in the East End, I'm like, why are there no grocery stores? Yep. Right? So you, when you start to think about that, all those things have an impact on your mental health, yeah. that person and environment. Yeah. And when I came to social work, I'm like, this makes so much sense. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier before this recording, that, you know, mental health conditions, they don't discriminate against race, color, gender or whatnot. But there's differences, you know, concerns, experience, how we understand, how we cope. That's where the difference lies. lies. And with African-Americans, we experience more severe forms of mental health conditions due to unmet needs, history and barriers. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. And I made a note that, you know, according to the Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, African-Americans are 10 percent more likely to experience serious psychological distress because of disparities and things just like you just mentioned, Daryl. So uh, exclusion from health, education, social economic resources, these disparities are what contributes to worse mental health conditions. Oh, but I'll also add on to that when you think about what it takes to be successful in this world of ours, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about that dual consciousness that we have to have, mm. right? Yes. So. You know, we have to be one way at work and then another way at home, right? right? We have to agree with certain things to keep our jobs and to feed our families. Mm. So, I mean, when you think about all that, that's a lot of stress. That's a lot of baggage that an individual has to carry. Yeah. You touched on a couple of things is number one, trust, and then and the community's trust just with the idea or the profession of social work because of historic interactions. And to me, that's why it's so important to distinguish black social workers from social work in general, because it was a very white woman centered led profession for so long as far as social work. And that's for another another show. But we also talked about the causes and root causes of racism and we know even Richmond City Health Department has said that our health inequities have been due to racism. The lines that have been drawn in our community, redlining were due to racism. And now where you live can actually predict how long you live and your access to healthcare right here in the city of Richmond. So when we're talking about health inequities, if we're not also layering in the mental health part of that, then we're not doing everything that we really need to for our overall community. We're having a lot of conversations around housing here in Richmond. The top five cities that are worse for eviction are all in Virginia, actually. We're talking about food deserts. Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about food justice. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Medicaid expansion. We're talking about healthcare. 
Now, how does every single one of those different conversations happen if they don't also include black mental health? And sometimes they're just not. So Tanji, you started a little bit telling us the differences of black mental health. What have you seen out there? Well, definitely when we think about black mental health and we think about what the black community and their access, yeah, there's an inability to access services. There's also a big reluctance because of prejudice and discrimination in the healthcare system. Historically, that's what it's been and it still is. And so oftentimes mistrust, distrust, inadequate treatment, misdiagnosis, and also lack of cultural competence. That's why we need black social workers, black mental health professionals, because reasons why the black community will not seek treatment or or return or, or just maintain uh, you know treatment for themselves is because they distrust the persons that are sitting beyond you know before them. Mm-hmm. They need someone that looks like them that they can relate to and they understand our history and our oppression. Someone who has no idea will not be able to treat per se that individual or support them because they have no real understanding of their experience we do we can't understand and you know in social work there's something what we call like um small disclosure and so in therapy sessions or just other treatment realms where we can give a small disclosure meaning that the therapist or the professional can share their own experience to help that individual see that we can relate to you know and i do that oftentimes with clients like hey I've been there too. And that provides that comfort and that safety Mm -hmm. that they seek because that's again, supposed to be a safe space in those rooms with a professional seeking therapy or any other type of treatment, even seeking education, you know, having a black professional like Daryl be able to teach on social work and tell them what they need. And so again, we're doing it for the next generation of social workers as well. Right. I mean, to have a black man with locks come in with the LCSW and talk about mental health, right? Yeah. I'm going to tell you, and I don't want to even skate over that because that's so powerful for, right. for clients to see somebody that looks like them, somebody with locks. Oftentimes you go into spaces where they, they're, they're around other professionals. They're all white. Yeah. And there's been times where I've been the only black person. I'm not talking about just social work. I'm just talking about in the entire agency or the, um, in the I would say in the entire agency. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about longstanding clients who have probably been coming to a particular agency mm-hmm. for maybe 10, 10 years, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably one of the first black per- people, black men mm-hmm. that, they, that they've seen in a professional capacity. Wow. So oftentimes I've, I've worked in an agency and left and clients that came that were not my clients were sad to see me leave. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I, would, I was not seeing them individually. Right. They, they just saw you around. They felt, exactly. <laughs> And they felt a loss just by just for my presence, just by my presence. But having a therapist that looks like you is it breaks down some barriers. And it's the same as having a teacher that exactly. looks like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. A coach that looks like you. Yeah, it's deep. Yeah. It's deep. And I would tell you, in addition to that, I would tell you in addition to some of those concerns, there's the we have to learn we have to own our reality. Mm. We have to start to really describe our characteristics and our reality so a good example in my career i've seen a lot of kids get misdiagnosed mm-hmm. right because of certain behaviors that we would describe as someone someone else might describe it as aggressive right or um a good disruptive example, disruptive disrupt okay so for example with uh black kids oftentimes you see black kids get labeled as adhd oppositional defiant mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. whereas uh 
another child, a white child, might be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Wow. Um, I've worked in this area, in this field for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I recall doing an assessment in uh, Gilpin Court. And this particular child that I was doing the assessment for, uh, the parent, well, the child was exhibiting some aggressive and, behaviors. Go ahead. And what's an assessment? An assessment is basically getting a social history okay. of what the, the child's behaviors are. Getting a social history, getting a, a, a gauge on what the current behaviors are, where it's occurring, mm -hmm. how often it's occurring. Okay. So I recall doing this one assessment and I was in Gilpin Court. Mm -hmm. And I was um, working with this one family and, and I was asking, I was doing my assessment and the child was having all types of aggressive behaviors at the school and um, wasn't staying in class, so on and so forth. And I was sitting in the parents' living room doing an assessment and I asked the mom, I said, um, has he ever been exposed to any trauma? Mm. And the mom was like, no. Meanwhile, upstairs I could hear some commotion, like a couple was arguing, um, might have been, they were throwing some things off a balcony, there was a lot of commotion going on. And you know, mom had been going back and forth to the window then she tells tells me, yeah, I do remember this one time my daughter came in and you know her head was bleeding because she had gotten into a fight in the in the community. Mm -hmm. She she told me that, but she never connected that to being traumatic. Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? She never connected those things. Right. So because it is it an is that a more of a norm? Well, I think saying? right. I, I think she what she experienced is this is just everyday behave everyday things that I'm seeing. Right. So, so her reality is, this is what I experience. This is quote unquote normal for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but she never connected that to, to having an impact on herself as well as her own child's behavior. I really appreciate that you talk about owning our reality. Um, it also means that we have to take the time to learn it and, and just unpack it a little bit. I think we know it, right? It just feels, looks, we've interpreted it differently because it is our norm in that type of situation or their norm in that situation. Let's talk a little bit about the word trauma. Sure. Because it's, it's one of those buzz, trendy words now. I'm gonna be really honest to say that when I hear about trauma-informed care, my eyebrow always goes up. Oh, mine too. <laughs> like, <laughs> the new trending too. thing right now. Mine too, let's talk about that. Let's... We can have a whole show on that. Right, well, we got some minutes, let's go ahead. Because I, it, and here on Race Capital, it's important to talk about this because in many of the rooms where my eyebrow goes up, it's a white-filled room. It's a white-led room. And my next question that we were actually going to talk about was a little bit about funding and the word equity within mental health. Because we cannot talk about equity if we don't talk about the money and funding from black mental health. But right now, trauma-informed care is getting funded. Oh, and it, it's, it's about to get really funded Come on. when they uh, redesign this uh mental health system here in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about it. What are y'all's um, experiences with TIC, trauma-informed care? Well, what I would say is that I don't disagree with some of the principles. Right. Because I do believe trauma is a actual thing. Sure. My issue with trauma-informed care is, again, this goes back to what I talked about describing our reality. Mm -hmm. Someone decided and learned that oh this is a real thing <laughs> and decided to now we're going to start labeling everything trauma and we now need to study this right right if you go back and look at how that was that that study was done it was not done on our people right the majority of people that trauma-informed care the aces um 
the ACES scale, mm-hmm. that tool was de- designed and developed on predominantly um, white women. And what is ACES? Adverse adverse child experiences. experiences. Right. So really quickly, what is ACES? Well, I don't I don't like to abide by it. So and speaking on it, pretty much in lay terms, it's a score. Right. And that score is basically telling you how how traumatized traumatized an, a child is. Right. It really by is. a number. Right. Based on <laughs> based on the number I don't of, not use that. The, based on the number of adverse experiences they yes. might have had in their exactly. life. Exactly. Right. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. So when you talk about divorce. Right. Um uh, separation from family, yes. um, an incarcerated parent. Right. So again, go back to that story that we were talking about, that child that I did that assessment on. Gilpin. That child is probably going to have a high mm-hmm. ACEs score, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But this has this has now been the reality that now everyone has experienced trauma. And so, but my thing is 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 the is the problem on the individual right or is the problem in the environment come on so when we have a bunch of children mm-hmm. a group of children mm-hmm. you're talking about not just in virginia not right. just that one we're talking about over the entire country country yeah yeah the I mean, the the systemic the, the what you're talking about the inadequate housing mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the the food insecurity all those things play into how that individual is, it's not a, it's not a healthy environment. Right. So you're not going to have a healthy individual. Right. So the, so the intervent, so where's the intervention? Should the intervention be on the child Mm. or should the intervention be on the environment? So let's have this conversation. And that, what you just described is why I got out of clinical social work and why I moved to a macro end. And not to say that I, that just, I realized in that moment, that wasn't my space, right? Like it, what I was called to do was hold the environment accountable, right, right? Right. Because it just that was that was my barrier to that. This ACES score. When I we go back to the funding, remembering the funding is going to follow this number of this score. Right. That's right. And I want to shout out Candace Lucas that we had on the show a couple weeks ago. She and I were in a meeting a couple years ago talking about this very score and how it's going to impact Richmond kids. And I was saying every single one of them are going to score high with this particular number. Are you all ready to come with the resources to provide what they need when these numbers come back? Because everyone wanted to push back the the big community interventions, the school funding, the mental health funding, the DMAS funding, and say, let's just wait until we get more data. And the data they were waiting for were these scores. And so what we were asking is when it comes back, are y'all going to be ready to put the money where your mouth is? Right. Right? And it, and it needs to be on these conditions. And if, if all of these children are coming back that way, are we also going to see the reality that it's not the children, that it's the environment? Right, right. Um, but these are not the conversations that are happening in these community rooms and these political rooms that are making the decision about where the money goes and trickles down to. And we got to add in the intergenerational trauma that people experience from slavery, from segregation, mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we really have to peel back the layers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm. I'm all willing. To, I'm like, if this is what we're going to talk about, let's have a full conversation about that. Right. That's that's where I'm at with it. Right. And I agree with you. I'm, I do a little bit of both, right? So right. as a professor, my goal is to have students to start to ask these questions, right? Because right? I teach students of all races and colors and genders and all of that. But we have to have a more robust conversation because my belief is that we need to teach 
the students to solve the problems yep. that we have. Yep. That because what we've, what we've not been doing is solving problems. We've just been giving it another name and giving it exactly. another name. Because yep. trauma-informed care in five, 10 years from now will not be here. We're going to call it something else. Yep. Yep. I feel like trauma-informed care is just another name for cultural competency. And Honestly. also social work. Because if you really Come think on. about what the definition is, trauma-informed care is, again, looking at the whole person, taking yes. account past trauma and the resulting coping mechanisms that come from it. That's what we do. Right. That's what we've been doing. And now y'all calling it trauma-informed care. Y'all having trainings, people getting certified in it. <laughs> Have we not been here doing that? That's what we've been doing. Tangie, I swear. I swear <laughs> like, to goodness. Like, that is literally... It's all about commodifying, right? They commodify mm -hmm. trauma-informed care. They, tr they commodify exactly. your pain. So yeah. it, it's frustrating to me because I see it's it's now trauma-informed supervision and trauma-informed. Oh like, my God, is there really? Yes. I've been out well, of clinical people for a are taking, while. People are taking words, trauma-informed, and you just tack it on anything else. Exactly. So Yeah. And again, that's where the money is going. And when the folks that have actually been doing the work for a long time are not necessarily at that table. And, you know, I talk a lot about working in different spaces. And again, why I went to more macro is because I saw a lot of my comrades with black and brown faces in these clinical rooms, but it was in these more political macro decision-making rooms I didn't see any of our faces in. And so the idea of social workers uh, that holistic of what we study it's also what we do so daryl you've talked about being head of black social workers being a clinical social worker being a teacher um you're a parent right both of you are parents mm -hmm. yep. tangy you have outpatient clients you all hold entire like goddess spaces you hold spaces and barber shops with men i mean it is a ongoing wit space am i in today as a black social worker facts and that is the holistic approach that we take and have been taking to address all of these systems and environments that we're talking about today that have caused this trauma, have caused the oppression, that have caused the scores that then lead to your white agency getting funded because of the research that's coming down like that, right? Can we, can we, oh, can we yeah. stop here for a second? Yeah, please. So like what you're describing for me is being more of a, a, a healer. Mm. Like, you know, I follow Tangie on Instagram and I like what you do because yeah. like what she does Appreciate is more that. she does healing yeah and that's where I'm at I I think I've social work is my profession I'm a licensed clinical social worker but what I'm more focused on is individual and community healing mm. and that's what we need mm. even us as black professionals we are we need healing too yeah and our oppression the oppression that's been put on us impacts our relationships yep Right. So how we relate to one another. Absolutely. Um, we're not at, we often come into spaces with other black people. And we feel like we have to be in competition mm -hmm. and we're at war with one another. Right. So that's part of what we're, we're doing through the black social workers is really looking at this thing because, you know, you can't separate mental health from our, the, our experience in this country and the oppression that we felt or we've experienced. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing through the black social workers is we're starting to look at the black scholars that we have lift them up mm -hmm. and really break down the the, the lessons that they've they've been giving us mm -hmm. um so coming up we'll be doing some mental health training around healing centered engagement around emotional uh, emotional emancipation circles there's a brother from atlanta named uh, baba wakesa mazimoyo he has a model called the warrior healer builder mm -hmm. program 
and it's really beautiful stuff giving us the emotional intelligence to really break down why we behave the way we do towards one another exactly you know Tangie, go ahead and run down a list of all of your certifications and honestly the services that you provide because it is i appreciate that daryl it is a, a very healing approach that you all give even just from social media not even like, always yeah. being that yeah. And so I do consider my private practice a mind-body practice because of that. Because, again, on the basis of social work, it's that whole person, whole body, mind, body, and spirit. And so we offer holistic healing services, which in the clinical world is referred to as complementary and alternative therapies to make it acceptable. Mm-hmm. But for you to get paid for it. Basically. Right. But we offer mindfulness training meditation, Reiki, which is a healing, you know, energy um, method. We offer yoni steaming. We offer- a What num- is yoni steaming? steaming? Well, yoni is sacred for vagina. Okay. And it's pretty much use of herbal medicine, mm-hmm. healing herbs mm-hmm. to cleanse and detoxify the woman's womb. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. And so we offer those things in addition to uh, nutrition psychoeducation. Uh, mm-hmm. I am now a certified and integrative medicine provider, meaning that I'm talking to people about what you eat and your food as your medicine mm-hmm. in combination to how you sleep and things of that nature, because that's all, you know, the basis of our foundation and that all contributes to mental health and wellness exercising. So we offer fitness classes yep. and trainings and things of that nature. So it's also, you know, like fun at, fitness classes. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So people reel them in, you know, that, that's their enforce, reinforcement. And so we offer all those things because it's bigger than just talking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. about how you're living. And we want to help people create a healthy lifestyle because they need to know, understand that this, too, is what helps you sustain happiness, mm-hmm. build yourself up and also be confident in managing mental health symptoms or just everyday problems. You can't do that if you're not well. The mind and body is interconnected. And what we know, going back to trauma, trauma lives in the body. And so I usually we refer to it as bottom up approaches. And those are what these things are. Mindfulness, deep breathing, breath work. All of these are bottom up approaches, not just top down, which is just working with the mind. Mm -hmm. We do mind and body. And people don't really get that. But, you know, here's a good example. You're you're in the woods and you see a bear. Do you think it's a bear? No, you run first. (laughs) The body responds. And so we have to treat the body to treat Uh. the mind and vice versa. And the, you know, until you treat the body, you won't be able to heal or overcome some of the things that are happening in the mind. And so that is where holistic healing methods come in. And let's also not forget, these are ancient remedies. This isn't anything new. We're basing it off of our ancestors. And so when we think about conditioning and what they wanted us to forget, it's these things. But we know they don't forget because when we look at ingredients and things of that nature, guess what pops up? All our little herbs and everything else. So, oh, that speaks to this does work. This is for healing reasons but y'all just kind of taking that away and taking that out of our our, our eyesight you know so we don't see that and, and you asked the question earlier about when does mental health start in the black community she's talking mm. about that yeah right. these indigenous practices exactly that we've been made to forget yep yep we've been made to forget mm-hmm. them so i appreciate that yeah. because our history didn't start 400 years ago no it didn't exactly it didn't. right Thank you all for your work. I mean, just hearing that that power behind empowering the body mm-hmm. to just take its agency back, filling our mind with the knowledge and remembering 
as well as just the lessons how to heal one another. Listening to you all just reminded me a lot of what I do in community organizing, especially with direct actions, is the first thing when people show up to organize, I literally just do group work first. We don't talk about the issue. We don't want to talk about who we're going after. When I go back to February and we were really organizing for direct actions at the Capitol with Blackface History Month, that's what most of our organizing would be, would just be checking in and taking care of one another. Because everybody that shows up to organize has some type of adverse history, mm -hmm, right? Exactly. That brought them there and owning that reality. So when we get together as organizers, we put these same practices into play, right. right? So we don't have to be a licensed clinical social worker. You don't necessarily have to have any type of like letters behind your name, but showing up and learning and being around folks that are doing the work and being in proximity to this, you can at least learn to heal yourself. Right. And that will then spread into the community by what you give and what Daryl talked about, how we interact with one another. That'll really support us. Well, you two are forces to reckon with, which is why you all are creating Make More Space for next week, which is Black Mental Health Week, second right. annual. Second annual. Second annual. So, so we are kicking off Black Mental Health Week with Cut to the Chase. That will be October 6th, Sunday, 1 to 2.30 p.m., at 1500 Lombardi Street, VUU Henderson Center downstairs. That's going to be facilitated and led by myself and Mecca Williams LPC at the brand new Wave Barbershop, which is owned by JBiz. So definitely come out. This is a space for men about men's issues, but all are welcomed. And on Monday, uh, October 7th, we'll be at Six Points Innovation Center in Highland Park. And there's going to be a youth panel on youth mental health. On Tuesday, the 8th, at Diversity Richmond, we are going to queer your mind. And that's going to be from 6 to 8, talking about LGBT plus um, issues. Really excited for Miss Zakia McKenzie to host that panel. And on Wednesday, we got a film screening with a film curated by Africana Film Festival on mental health. That will be, again, at the Black History Museum from 6 to 8. And that's going to be moderated by Felicia Bowman. And October 10th, World Mental Health Day, we are going to be at 227 East Belt Boulevard from 6 to 8, focused on black women and mental health. Special guests will be Birth and Color and some other women around Richmond focused on women's health issues. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you all for all that you do. Before we get out of here, we got to do our favorite segment of the show, which is... What's your privilege? What's your privilege is where we invite each guest of the show to identify what privilege they walk around with in the world and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. Who wants to go first? Okay, I think I'll go first. Okay, um, thanks, Tangie. Um, in thinking about privilege, I guess I could say having two parents that did have access to education, graduated from college with, both well, of them actually have sociology degrees, and able to maintain employment throughout my life. Mm -hmm. So although we actually were faced with some traumatic experience, if it was not because of their education background and actually stable employment, we wouldn't have made it through. Wow. So that's definitely, I think, privilege. Mm -hmm. Having that generational education that held y'all down, yeah. I'm gonna say my male privilege mm -hmm. does help me out mm -hmm. a lot. Um, my, my hetero male privilege. There you go. I don't know what it's like to be discriminated against for being a woman. Mm -hmm. I know being a black male in 
a female dominated profession like social work, mm-hmm. I've never had a hard time finding a job. Right. Um, it's a privilege, but it's also a curse. Mm. But uh, th- that's what I would say. Okay. How can I ask just specifically in the black mental health world, are you all using these points of access or privilege to support in your idea to support the community? Yeah, whenever I get a, whenever I'm at the table, mm-hmm. I I like to lift the issue mm-hmm. and talk about things from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, good example is an event we do at VCU. Mm-hmm. It's called Richmond Revisited. Mm-hmm. What we do is we take a current day issue and we look at the historical context of that issue mm-hmm. in the city of Richmond. So, for example, this last year we we talked about race and health. Mm-hmm. And we looked at some of the historical context of health mm-hmm. in general, um, what that's been like for black people in this country. Mm-hmm. So looking at how um, the medical profession had used black bodies, um, slaves had, had dug up bodies from Evergreen Cemetery mm-hmm. for use at uh, MCV mm-hmm. for cadavers. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that mm-hmm. and talked about how we have the health disparities today. Mm-hmm. and the the, the the mistrust black people have in the medical s- setting. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about earlier, the stigmas, they have a historical context to them. So right. um, doing programming like that with all students to give them a sense that what you see today mm-hmm. didn't just happen today. These are, there's a historical root right. that's based in racism. Right. So being able to use your connections, your education, yeah. your, your the people Our that privilege. you know in the community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's my privilege. It is your privilege to... Reach back um, and I guess mine would be me moving forward and continuing that pattern of education, going and receiving my education, obtaining my Bachelor of Social Work, my Master of Social Work, and then taking it to become licensed. At the same note, you know, then I hear, oh, you're such a strong black woman. Mm. And I have to plug this in because more recently we've given more attention to the black superwoman syndrome. Mm. And I've, I've been I've been challenged by that. You know, that has been um, my experience, you know, doing all things, multitasking, being everyone to everybody, having my children be a mother, a wife, business owner, therapist and all those things. And so we've been given that more attention. And more recently, my business partner partner and I came together and we have um, what's now out and live you can register via Eventbrite escapes but it's pretty much the message we were trying to send to women is take off your cape take a break you know and so our trip for next year 2020 will be Toronto Canada and we're going to continue forward with that um my business partner is uh, the president of Education Connection Academy, ECA, and that's pretty much, this is going to be their fundraiser event, but it's really to give more attention to, hey, we don't always have to be that strong woman, that woman that does it all, because in the black community, the woman is the matriarch of the family and leads right. the way, but what is it doing to our mental health as women, and we'll talk more about that too at, um, when we talk about black women's mental health on Thursday as well, but yeah, we, we have to recognize what that can also do, some of these generational patterns, it can work for us but it can sometimes work against us yeah wow that's a whole show in and of itself it is oh, i it feel is. like i just got called out in this whole <laughs> i was I, like I, we're gonna have to talk about super syndrome <laughs> yeah we got to um my friend co-host and producer was actually just having the same conversation with me yesterday about making sure i take a vacation and if y'all going all the way to toronto you're gonna make Chelsea, sure we have you all. have to be there you have to come <laughs> I sent you the flyer. She, she sure did. <laughs> she sure did. Her and her business partner. Shout out, Dr. B. Um, 
so this week I'm going to say that my privilege is being able to work in clinical social work for 10 years and have a, an effective, I'm not going to say seamless uh, transition to macro work, but I do have the access to continue this work of social work through my connections in the city that I grew up in. Um, so I have the privilege of knowing many people around different avenues and different organizations so I can continue this work. But I take with me the experiences and the stories and the people I've worked with for 10 years that invited me in their homes, that allowed me to take their children with me when they barely even knew me, that trusted me to speak for them in the courtroom, at the housing department, at you know the food pantry, that I take all of those experiences and those people with me and I tell folks all the time what made what pushed me into macro work is that so many of my clients were black mothers and I just I understood that they also needed a black mother in these rooms that were making these decisions about how their benefits and their health insurance and their money and their access was made so I am very privileged to have met so many amazing people that are carrying our historical harms and traumas. And I'm also privileged to know these two superheroes. I guess I shouldn't say the superhero. Gosh. Right? <laughs> not super women. No, not the super women. <laughs> but just okay. community thank heroes. Yes, thank you. Like Tangi Moore and Daryl Fraser. I've known Daryl Fraser was actually my first supervisor coming out of college. <laughs> so we could actually go back. I mean, I remember... Just the, I walked in earlier to these two talking about a meeting about social workers all over the community, maybe not knowing each other, but should knowing each other and how powerful that could be, because that's the space that rich and black social workers are making right now. They're inviting social workers to come in and be in community with each other. And it just reminded me about how important it is to have experiences with one another that are outside of the work, like the the identified work. Because one of the biggest experiences I actually remember with Daryl is when my sister Austin had to leave William and Mary because of just feeling awful and how that affected my entire family. And like that, that happened in 2009, 10 years ago. Mm. So a reason why I always actually feel like I can, I can trust Daryl is just because of that experience of where he was with me mm. and my family. Um, so be in community with one another, love on one another, find you a black social worker and find out what you all can do with one another. And I'm really excited about Black Mental Health Week, October 6th through October 10th. And I just want to thank you all for coming on and joining me on this tiny but mighty mic that we have here at Race Capital. Yes, for thank you us. for having us. Yes. Thanks, y'all. Keep doing this good work that you're doing. Yes. Yeah. And and just to learn more about program services, events, you can definitely follow Avail Counseling at Avail Counseling on Instagram, availcounseling.com. And also you can follow me, Tangie Moore, just full government. <laughs> and you, if you want to learn more about the black social workers, there's richmondavsw.org. Mm -hmm. We are an affiliate of the National Association of Black Social Workers. Boom. And if you need to get at me, is richmondabsw at gmail.com. Beautiful. Thank you all, and I'll see everybody next week, Black Mental Health Week. Peace. I'm so, I'm so reborn. I'm moving forward. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Ain't no stress on
I'm really excited to be part of the making with Black Mental Health Week, the second annual, because of the space that's being created in this week. Black social workers are really taking the time and intention to address the stigma within the black community surrounding mental health and healthcare in general, and just seeking out that support. By creating the space, we're able to show a different type of representation or just a different type of being able to show a different face for mental health, that mental health can look and feel different than it has in the past. Social services, that term, can look and feel different than the past where we've been in fear of our families being separated, of us being labeled as bad parents, of us just losing the autonomy to raise our children the way that we see fit, or as well as just changing the idea of how we ask for help and it not coming from a place of, are you going to then label me as a bad community member, bad parent, if I'm asking for help? And this space that's being created is for Black people, for the community, but most importantly, it's by Black mental health professionals. And everybody is invited to these conversations, but just understanding the importance of having Black professionals lead that when they are not identified by the state, by the nation, by our city as the leading mental health professionals in our localities. Those go to the state and county entities, right? That funding, those resources go there instead of for the people that actually know how to engage with our community the best. We've had social services in the city of Richmond, what seems like forever, but our communities are not improving. And that is probably because the systems that are set up, the programs that are set up are not set up by the people that have not just the the training, but also the exposure, the proximity to the community. That's when we talk about racial equity, we talk about mental health. We've got to also talk about the funding that comes to help uplift our community, whether that's in housing spaces, food and security spaces, whether that's in climate change, whether that's in educational spaces, all of that stress is impacting black mental health in our communities. How are we layering that in a way that is paid for resource so that we also aren't stressing out the social workers that are trying to provide the support? This is a systemic issue. This is a community issue. And right now we're all just taking the baby steps to understanding black mental health here in Richmond, Virginia. So just a reminder that next week is Black Mental Health Week, October 6th through October 10th. And you know, Kat, I am just continuing to be grateful for this mic that we have and the ability to share these amazing resources and, and projects that are happening across the community of demonstrations that show communities take care of themselves and they have the answers. We'll see y'all next week. Black Mental Health Week, and check us back out here at Race Capital. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the O, the N, the D. That's my
I swear this place ain't got no 